This right. is an eight iron, and it's a dead shank. Wow. Way right. Oh, Takes a hop off the path. You gotta be kidding me. Very tough pitch shot right here. You gotta hit it into the hill. One hop up and bite, and it's in. Kind of like that! It's Jason Hyland from the Sub 70 Podcast, and our guest today is John Wood, who is a PGA Tour caddy from Matt Kuchar. He's been out on tour a long time, about 20 years of experience, so he's seen a ton. Victories on tour, Ryder Cups, President's Cups, always a really interesting conversation with caddies as they have a really unique perspective sort of on life and what it's like to be on the PGA Tour at that level. So we really appreciate the time that John gave us. Hope you guys enjoy the podcast. Please give us any feedback or ratings. And without further ado, here is John. Thanks for listening. Well, I would like to welcome to the Sub 70 Podcast, PGA Tour caddy from Matt Kuchar, John Wood, uh, as our guest today. John, thanks for very much for being on the podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Jason, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. So uh, you had a bit of an off-season, taking some time off a little bit and uh, recharging the batteries. What have you been doing during the break, and how excited are you to get back out there in 2019? I'm excited to get back out. I think uh, I think Cooch is going to rebound from his not so great year last year that he had. And uh, I think he, that win in Mexico really put him in a great frame of mind, got him ahead of game in a little bit. So uh, I'm, I'm excited about the year, really excited. And of course, getting to go to Maui uh, is always a, a good, a good thing in, in January to start the year off. Um, I've been at home for about a month now. I've been doing a little bit of camping, uh, went down to Joshua tree, one of my favorite places in the world. And then uh, came up to big Sur and spent a few days there. And then other than that, I've been home uh, playing guitar and seeing friends and kind of getting caught up with people. I know you also did a uh, produced and wrote uh, an album called Record 66. How, how did that come about from, you know, playing music to saying, I'm going to go ahead and record something and produce it and, and kind of get it out for the world to listen to? You know, it's not something I ever in a million years dreamed I would be able to do. Um, I played guitar for a while, but pretty much just kind of playing other people's songs and trying to learn very basic chords. And I'm an 18 handicap on the guitar. There's no question about that. But uh, about three years ago, I, I decided I, I wanted to try and write a song. And, um, you know, it wasn't as mysterious and magical as it had seemed to me before. And um, the first song I wrote was Lucky Then, uh, which is the first one on, on that record that I put out. And, uh, from that point on, uh, whenever I had ideas, you know, either just a line or a subject or a title, um, I try and fit some chords to that idea and uh, just went on with it. So, like I said, I never thought I would be able to do something like that. And uh, once I started writing them, I decided to try and make some good recordings on GarageBand, just on my computer, and and uh, it just kept steamrolling. So, not, not that my plan, it just came about. Have you had a passion for music your entire life? And um, as a part two, what bands have sort of influenced your musical direction and who do you enjoy listening to? Yeah, I've, I've loved music my whole life. I mean, I was uh, I was seven years old and I made my parents take me to see Elvis Presley up in Tacoma, Washington. So uh, it's it's been a lifelong passion of mine. Uh, not playing so much, but listening. Um, in terms of favorite band, my favorite band of all time is The Replacements. Uh, kind of an 80s college rock uh, band that was always on the cusp of being big, but, uh, you know, found their comfortable spot and, and were better off staying there. Um, I like Wilco a lot. Uh, There's a band from Athens, Georgia called the Drive-By Truckers, who I absolutely love. Uh, but, but the Replacements are probably my favorite band of all time. Any plans for you playing live in the upcoming year with the album out and everything? Is that a possibility? No. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I really never, have never done that. I, I guess I could do an open mic or something like that, but there's no plans for it. If I do it, it will be just a spur of the moment uh, bravery decision more than anything else. <laughs> well, it's very cool. You got something besides golf, right, to have a passion about and sort of use that for your downtime. So um, exactly. very, very cool. Um, back to golf. Your guy's playing quite well. The win in Mexico, which I know you weren't on the bag, so it kind of had to be kind of strange from that standpoint that I'm sure you had a vacation planned or something and Cooch used a, a local caddy but did you kind of see this trend line coming uh through the fall season of uh, 
his performance and then the win was going to be close? You know, it's funny. His This year, his skill set seemed fine all year long. Um, it didn't seem different. It, um, he was doing things well. Um, and just at the end of the day, um, more often than not, was to stop putting up a score for one reason or another. And that might be a couple missed putts or, or one bad hole. or um, So it was just kind of a mystery as to why, because that is usually his strength, is no matter how he's hitting it, um, he's able to put up a score. Um, this year was kind of the opposite. I felt like he, he had a good skill set. He was in control of himself most of the year, and just we couldn't figure out a way to put a score up. So it didn't surprise me at all that, that he came out and started playing well because, you know, that's such a confidence thing. I think once you get out there and have a little bit of confidence in and, and putting up a score after he played that really good first round, um, you know, I thought he had a great shot all week at that point. Bittersweet, some level that you weren't on the bag. You're happy for your guy. But sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, I'm thrilled for Matt. He's worked so hard to get through this little hiccup. I couldn't be happier for him and his family and, and everybody involved. And, and, you know, more than anything, I would, I would love to have been there just to experience it with him and, and more out of pride than anything. And, uh, but it doesn't take any, any, any bit of my, uh, being excited for him and thrilled for him away at all. So will you guys do both weeks? I know you're going to play the Century Tournament of Champions. I imagine you'll play Wiley as well, right? Because that has to set up quite nicely for his game. And then will you guys be taking some time off, or will he hit the uh, the, the the California coast and, and kind of play quite a bit on the first part of the season? What's the overall sort of game plan look like for maybe the first eight weeks of the season? Yeah, we're definitely going to play the first two in Hawaii. He loves Wailai. Um, hasn't gone there for the last couple of years. It's kind of changed the schedule around. Um, but he's going back to the schedule he used to play. So we're playing both in Hawaii. Um, we're not sure yet about Palm Springs. I think that one's 50-50. And then we will play Phoenix. Um, we won't play San Diego or AT&T, but we will play Phoenix and L.A. and Mexico. That'll be a, That's our plan right now. So that'll be enough to kind of get it rolling and try to pick some golf courses that sort of fit his game, I'm exactly. assuming, a little bit as well. As well. Yeah. Um, been around Matt a few years now, you know, in that partnership. And what is the one or two things that he does year in and year out to make him such a world-class player that you get to see up close? Number one is effort. Um, he never, ever doesn't give a shot full attention. No, I mean, no matter what position he's in, um, no matter what he's shooting on that day, um, every shot is important to him. And, um, I say that's the number one thing. That's the greatest thing to have to caddy for is a guy who is always into it. You know, um, you can't put a price tag on that. Cause sometimes, you know, you get in a bad place, you're going to miss a cut or something. And, 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 you know, guys can mail it in out there and it's totally understandable, but Matt does not. Um, so, you know, every day going to the course that he's giving it a hundred percent effort and he's completely into it. Um, he's got an unbelievable, unbelievable positive attitude. Um, he can get upset when he does something or I do something wrong, but, um, he's able to just let it go right away, get right back into what he's doing. Um, and between him and Webb Simpson, I always, I always laugh at those two. I joke, I don't know who's got a better strokes gained attitude stat if there was between those two uh, because it means a lot to have a good attitude out there and and lastly he loves golf um, I think it's not a rarity out there but for somebody who's been on tour for so long and played professional golf at this level for so long sometimes it can become more of a grind than a job but I mean he loves to play golf when he's home he's playing with his kids or um, going to Dallas to see his teacher and and uh, so, you know, it's not necessarily physical things, but I, I just, they're all kind of mental and emotional things that I think are, make him stand out. Hey everyone, it's Jason Highland at Sub 70 Golf, and we have an announcement to make that our golf club company, Sub 70 Golf, is up and running. The website is www.golfsub70.com, and the whole idea is premium equipment, handcrafted, hand-built to your specifications here in Sycamore, Illinois, but with a factory direct model. So you'll get a lot more value for your money and the equipment is as good as we can possibly make it and uh, all customizable exactly for you. So we hope you guys enjoy it. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Any questions on the golf club side, just let us know. 
And thanks again for the support and uh, listening to all the podcasts we've done. Appreciate it. Have a great holiday season. So the the fall playoff run, you guys were sort of right there for potentially a Ryder Cup pick. I, I honestly thought you guys were going to get the nod based on, especially how that golf course, everyone kind of knew it was going to be set up. It was going to be the you know the opposite of how the Americans play the Ryder Cup, and it was going to be shorter and tighter and you know accuracy, which Matt does really well with. How tough was that on you guys of not getting that nod? And then as a as a follow up, being uh, an assistant captain is a huge honor. Did you get to go over there with the team as well, with Matt on that? And, you know, how would you sort of surmise up that fall run of, you know, the disappointment, but yet, you know, Matt still makes it over there with the team. And then did that kind of light a fire under his belly a little bit too to get back there with that, you know, then he goes out and wins. So is there some positives from that as well? Sure. I mean, we knew we were close, um, both on the list and in Jim's mind um, for a pick and, and, and honestly, I don't think we had to do much to be a pick because I think in probably in in his heart of hearts, he would have loved to have seen you know guys like Matt and Zach Johnson play really well down the stretch because that golf course really would have suited both of them. Um, but you know we didn't get the job done. We didn't play well enough to be a pick. Um, and and the guys who were a pick were pretty much no brainers. I mean, you can't fill in one that year and was really close. You know, regardless of the golf course, you. You know, he's such a stalwart on those teams and so great in the team room. Um, Tiger just won, and Tony Finau played unbelievable golf, um, you know, every single week. Um, and Brandon, or, uh, Bryson DeChambeau had won twice in a row. So the picks were pretty, you know, pretty much no-brainers, I felt like, from a, a form standing standpoint. Um, like I said, I don't think we had to do a whole lot, but we had to show Jim something, and we just didn't we just didn't get it done at the end. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. It would have been worse had we played well and not, and then not been a pick. Uh, but no, it wasn't something that I don't think either of us expected um, when the picks were coming. So it didn't, it wasn't that, you know, it didn't hurt that badly. Um, yeah, I did go over. Um, I was kind of an assistant for the caddies um, and Matt's assistant as well, kind of in charge of his cart and, and, uh, and then, uh, you know, doing anything I could for the caddies just to kind of stay ahead of the game. There's a lot of stuff that goes on um, during those weeks that's kind of extracurricular. And um, it was kind of fun to, it was kind of fun for me to to kind of stay ahead of the game for them and, and make sure they had everything they needed and, and just kind of doing anything I could do to, to help them out was kind of uh, a new perspective. It was fun uh, until Friday morning. Then I really wanted to be on the bag. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, it was still a great perspective to watch it from. Was that golf course, in your opinion, I mean, super, super tight? Or was it different than most of the regular tour events that you see on tours set up? I mean, did they have it pretty extreme, I guess, when you're actually walking the grounds and seeing it from, you know, your experience of being out there? It was tight. I don't think it was overly tight. The the thing was that the rough was so penal. Um, You know, if, if you had a little bit more playable rough, you know, I think it would have been, I don't want to say fair, it just would have been more like a normal, uh, normal tour course. Um, this felt like an old U.S. Open. And I say old because the last few have been kind of different. Um, whereas, you know, you knew you could not play this course if you didn't hit fairways. And I don't care what club you were hitting off the tee, you, you had to play this course from the fairways. If you didn't, most likely you could not reach the green. Um, and I think you saw more holes won with pars than, than a lot than you ever have in a Ryder cup um, just because of that. So it wasn't tighter in terms of, of width of fairways. It was just more penal if you did miss. So what is your background in sort of the journey of how you got involved in the game of golf? And then how did that path lead you out to the PGA tour to be a professional caddy? How did that come about? You know, I was always a baseball player growing up. I lived for baseball. And then um, after my freshman year in high school, um, I played a lot of golf that summer and, and got fairly proficient at it fairly quickly. And the, the school that I went to didn't have a golf program. And, and um, I wasn't, I don't want to say recruited, but there was, uh, I, there was a, a private school here in Sacramento Jesuit that had a great golf program. And, and um, I was fortunate enough to transfer and start playing golf full time as a sophomore in high school. That's when I really started playing. Um, so I played through high school, played a little bit of college golf. Um, and then was basically 
done. I, w- I was playing a little bit here and there, but I was never going to turn pro or anything like that. Uh, but being from Sacramento, uh, I knew Kevin Sutherland very well. Um, I knew his teacher, Don Botham, very well. And Kevin had just finished his first year on tour and hadn't really settled on a caddy at all. He had three or four different ones. And um, we were out just hitting balls one day and, and the subject came up and we just started talking about me coming out and caddying for him. So I just fell into it really and, and honestly thought I'd do it for a year or two and then get back to the real world and get a real job. And uh, that was 23 years ago. So luckily I've avoided that getting a real job my entire life. It's been great. What what essential skill sets does a really good caddy have to have when you're when you're doing it at that level on the PGA Tour and, and how long does it take to be really comfortable and and good at that that job when you're dealing with players of that level? Yeah, it's a great question. I I had no idea. I thought I knew golf pretty well and I thought I knew caddying okay, um, but when I started it and it, it it blew me away how much more goes into it than than I thought initially. And even today there's, you know, twice as much that goes into it than when I started. Um, I think you have to be very prepared. Um, so you're not surprised by anything during the week, during the day, during the round. Um, the worst thing you can do is be surprised by something. So really be prepared, know where the pins are, know what the weather forecast is, know how the course is playing. Um, you know, I always say a, a good caddy, and there's lots of good caddies these days. Um, a good caddy has the answer to five questions that never get asked for every shot. So as, as a caddy's going up to, to start to assess a shot and get a yardage, um, before we even say anything or talk to our player about the shot or give him a yardage, we're, we're calculating everything, you know, and, and getting all the numbers um, that he might want. You know, there's a total number, obviously. There's a front number. But we're also putting in our minds – what the wind is doing, how much the shot plays uphill, um, what the weather feels like, how far the ball's going that day. So if you are asked, boom, you're ready with an answer. You're not fumbling with your yardage book or hemming and hawing or being indecisive. You are there and immediately have the answer almost before he finishes the question. Um, so being very prepared, I think um, confidence has a lot to do with it. I think uh, really good caddies. You think about guys like Bones and Joe LaCava, Steve Williams, Paul Tesori. You know, over the years you hear those conversations on air and they're so positive about what they're saying. It's not one way or the other. They, they give their opinion. Um, I think it's important uh, to realize that you're, you're being paid for your opinion and not, not to be afraid to voice it. You can't be afraid. You can't be a yes man and, and just trying to keep your job. You're not going to be a good caddy if you do that. A lot of confidence. Um, And you got to have a good relationship in that your player trusts you enough and allows you to to speak like that. You know, they're paying you for your opinion and for your work and for your information that you can provide. Um, So the worst thing you could do is, is, like I said, be a yes man. Um, And you're either going to say, you might, you might get a job here and there, but you're not going to be a, a good caddy out there. And, and uh, you got to have the confidence to, to state your opinion and, and live and die with that. So you got the green light where if Matt's over a shot and you feel something or see something that's different, you will step in. And is it ever a hard sure. thing to say, when am I going to do that? When am I just going to let my player play the shot? Or is it just the years of experience you have, you know, when you need to step in and call them off on it if you feel like the club's not the right club or something you guys didn't? Yeah, it's a tough, uh, it's a tough timing thing. Um, when to step in, um, you know, if he's already over the shot and you know, he's about to pull the trigger, even if you feel something at that point, you really, you got to be careful because if he pulls it back and you say something, then, then you're, it's really not going to be a good show. Um, but yeah, I think once you've talked over the shot and you both decided on what shot it is, um, they're they're trans they're moving into golf swing mode okay this is a shot we both discussed it we agree on it i'm going to hit a smooth seven and here's what i do to hit a smooth seven to me at that point they kind of can check out of conditions they're they're now at that point in the mind of hitting the golf shot we have to stay in that moment of feeling conditions so if we've decided it's a smooth seven and all of a sudden you know i feel a wind come up at our back that 
he might feel, but he's in golf shot mode now. He's not in analyzing feel. So uh, at that point, uh, you know, I, I'll set, we'll back off and I'll say, hang on, man, I don't like this club with this wind. Um, and then once I, if I pull him off a shot, then he'll kind of switch back to analyzing the shot and go, yeah, you're right. I feel it. it's just a normal eight iron right now with that much help. So um, we'll either, at that point, we'll either change to an eight or we'll wait out the wind. Um, I'd say there's a couple holes on tour where you really wait out the wind and you don't want to go back and forth. That's 17 at Sawgrass and 12 at Augusta. Um, you kind of make your decision based on a certain set of parameters. And then uh, if those parameters change, most meaning mostly wind, um, you tend to wait the wind out until it goes back to what it, what it was when you made the decision. Uh, because sitting there and going back to the bag, changing clubs, changing clubs can really get your player in a bad frame of mind. So you kind of at that point want to stick with your decision on the win. And, you know, you might say something like just wait it out, you know, give it, give it a few seconds. We're in no hurry here. It'll go back to what it was doing. Um, just so they stay in that same frame of mind as well. And if it, if it keeps up, you know, then, we'll, then obviously we'll change. Um, but, for the most part, there's a few shots you really want to stick with what you, the initial decision you make. Interesting how that experience must help with that. And you're playing half psychologist and half weatherman and factoring all those things <laughs> in. It's uh, I can yeah. see why some of those, you know, I'm sure you were way better five years into it than you were your first couple of years out there, right? There's That experience has to be invaluable that you've just been yeah. there and you've done yeah. it. You, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's interesting yeah. how much goes into just a golf shot, I guess, is the point I'm, I, I'm making at that level. Exactly. And these guys are so good. And the, the difference between good and, and, and average on tour is, is such a fine line that you really have to, you know, go into all that stuff because, uh, it, you know, at the end of the end of the week, you know, one shot could be everything. So, um, you know, I, I say I always tell everybody these guys are so good that if they're over a shot with confidence, most likely they're going to make a good swing. I think most mistakes come on tour when there's um, indecision in their head. So if, if you guys can, if you and your player can talk over everything thoroughly, um, agree, he gets over the shot with full confidence that you've factored everything in and made the right decision. Uh, it's rare that they hit a bad shot. Then bad shots come when you're in, they're indecisive. We can talk about some of the guys you've worked for and you kind of brought up uh, Kevin Sutherland already and how you guys got to know each other from being out in Sacramento and, I don't know if you could comment on this. I think he was somewhat or is underappreciated on his career in the PGA Tour of how good he was for that period of time. Um, I don't know if you feel the same way. And, and what was the best part of that experience caddying for him and, and what made Kevin so good for so long? Kevin is, is yeah, very underrated. I think, you know, he ha he put himself in position a lot and, and for whatever reason um, didn't check off you know, the only win he had was the match play win um, when he had a lot of really good chances to win stroke play events. And for what, whatever reason, it just didn't happen. Um, but yeah, his, his, he's one of the best iron players I've ever seen in my life. Um, just so consistent, um, able to control his ball flight and his distances unbelievably well. Um, and I'm sorry, what was the second part of the question? Uh, just, you know, being out there for the, your first time doing that to be oh, with a player yeah. of that level, you know, of consistency, like what, what made him so good just every year he was just there for an extended yeah. period of time. Kevin is, is so tough. He's such a grinder. Um, he, uh, it took him quite a while to get on tour after, after he finished at Fresno state. Um, I, I want to say it took seven to eight years for him to, to make it on tour and that kind of dedication. Um, he's a fighter. Um, so he had, he had a really good short game. He was a good putter, um, great iron player. He really didn't have any weaknesses. So, um, you know, he made a ton of cuts. He was always there. And, and, uh, Kevin was great with me that he, he had the patience to, um, let me learn how to caddy out there. Because like I said, I didn't, I didn't have a clue when I started. Um, uh, but he was real patient with me and, and, you know, I got to know some really good guys on tour right away and learn from them. And, um, so he, he was just, uh, he couldn't have been better to me to, for a guy to start with. And then you got Kelk. Um, 
Mark Elkovecki. I have Sam Bias yeah. in this one. He was our first guest on the podcast, and I've got to know him a little bit personally. He's just a great guy. So that experience had to be fun in the sense that you got an aggressive player who makes a ton of birdies. And when you were caddying for him in his mid-40s, he was really, really playing well. So uh, when you were out there with Kelk, what did he do to make him world-class, you know, sort of at a period of time when a lot of players are starting to wind their career down? He was still ultra-competitive at that period in his mid-40s. Yeah, Kelk will, I think, be the first to admit that he was a streaky player. But when he had it, it was ridiculous. You know, if he, if he didn't have it, um, you know, he had a pretty good short game and he could, he could get away with some stuff. But when he was swinging well and he knew he was swinging well, it was like, I think, I can't remember who said it, but it might have been said about somebody else, but they, they said they'd shoot at a Frisbee in the middle of the lake. Uh, and that was Calc when he was swinging well. Um, when Calc got in contention, you know, it's funny. He didn't need a lot of information um, when he was playing really well. Um, and then the last night, like he, he might not do anything but give him yardages for – for uh you know 63 holes and then if he was in contention all of a sudden the last nine holes he was asking you everything so it was fun to be in on that but uh calc was like i said when his game was on he was absolutely fearless that that week he shot i think 28 under in phoenix he told me on wednesday i wasn't working for him but he told me on wednesday he said this tournament's over already (laughs) so he knew he had it it was one of his favorite courses and and uh you know he, he knew he he was that confident so he was a blast in that sense, super aggressive um, and just a, a fun guy, you know, fun guy to be around. 2000 sticks, you start working with Hunter Mahan and you guys go on a, I was looking at the, the, the history of 2006 to 2015, crazy good. you like six wins, really, really high yeah. on the money list every year. And what did, what did he do or what did you guys do as a team to, to take it to that level for that extended period of time of with all the wins and, and you know, right. everything that came along with it, it was a heck of a run he was on. It was, it, he was uh world-class for that whole, that whole stretch really. Um, I, he was, he had been on tour for two years and he had a pretty good year, his rookie year, his, his second year on tour. Um, he actually ended up losing his card and having to go back to tour school. Um, at that point, Calc and I had split up um, on a, just a mutual agreement. Kind of Calc needs to look at somebody new a lot. Uh, so I had we had played with Hunter in Milwaukee, and I talked to the ping rep at the time, Matt Rollins, and said, "Hey, if if Hunter is ever looking, um, you know, let let me know because I think uh, I think he's got a lot of game and it's it's untapped right now, and I think I might really be able to help him." So. Um, we ended up, he ended up calling Matt as well and and basically said the same thing about me. So, uh, we luckily just hooked up that year and I I went to tour school finals with him. Uh, that was our first tournament together, which talk about stress. That's, that's as stressful as I've ever caddied is, is caddy in a tour school. Um, and he got his card back and, um, you know, we started together that year and, and just never looked back. And I think, um, he was such an unbelievable ball striker, um, and similar similarly to maybe Matt last year, and that he just wasn't putting up the scores he should put for how well he, uh, he was. He hit the ball, and I think maybe my demeanor with with Hunter was very um, I don't want to say forceful, but um, I really felt like when you told Hunter A B C do this, he could just turn off everything and do it here's the number here's the club i think it is hit it and he would say okay and just do it um in in the case of like you see that little trash can 300 yards out there hit your driver right at that it's perfect and he would do it so he he was such an incredible ball striker and, and um always was really um all you know that whole time that whole stretch you're talking about um, just probably the best ball striker I've ever worked for at that, at, you know, for that stretch. And then I'm assuming in your wildest dreams, you never thought he would struggle like he has over the last couple of years. Um, kind of a two-part question. Any idea what caused that? Then on the flip side, boy, when the chips were down this year and he went back to the web.com finals, he, he bucked up and showed up and played like a champion. So it shows he's got a ton of heart, uh, you know, still the talent's there and for him to do it. So, 
Um, sort of a two-part question there of a lot of resilience yet. I, I think most people in golf would have never thought he would have had those struggles, but it also shows golf's, you know, it's a fine line. It's, it doesn't take much, um, you know, to have your golf game not where it once was. Sure, exactly. You know, Hunter had a lot of stuff going on outside of golf. It's not always, you know, the golf that starts something. He's, you know, he, he's an unbelievably great daddy, and they had three kids under three, um, very quickly, uh, obviously. Um, so he had a lot more going on than just golf in his life. And that was really the first time in his life he ever had that. So there was some adjustment time, I think, to that. Um, I think he's figured it out now. Um, he, he was such a confident player, uh, for a while there when he hit it so good. Um, and then when that started to get a little shaky, um, you know, I think he was, spending more time at home with the kids and being a dad maybe than he was the used to on his golf game, which is hundred percent understandable and, and laudable. He should. Um, but yeah, he's, uh, he really struggled for a couple of years there and, um, he's, he's coming back. I, I mean, we've played a few practice rounds with him. He's actually working with Chris O'Connell, um, who is Matt's teacher now. So we've played some practice rounds with him. And even before he started playing well, um, you know, you'd watch him hit a few shots and say, "That's yeah, coming back. It's starting to starting to happen again." So, I would expect him to to you know maybe not play to the level he used to, but I think he'll play pretty well this year. You guys had a really good run in the Presidents Cup too. Um, you know, oh seven, oh nine, eleven, thirteen with Hunter Mayhan. You guys win all four of those uh, events, and the Americans always seem to do so well in that competition. Is there a reason why you think the American team in that team competition does so well, you know, sort of every other year? And uh, what did you guys do well to win four of them like that? You know, the Ryder Cup is such a pressure cooker compared to the President's Cup. Um, I'm not saying the President's Cup is easy because a lot of those were close. I mean, we ended up winning, but um, they weren't blowouts by any means. I think that event particularly, um, I think the international team, struggles to bond sometimes um there aren't as many natural pairings and um there's different languages the captains have to overcome and figure out you know there's a lot more that goes into their pairings than any you know the europeans or or ours um and not to say it's not a big event because it still is a big event but it's we it's more fun for the american team than a Ryder cup typically is um Ryder cup is it is pressure cooker from the first practice round to the last putt on Sunday. Um, it's just a different animal, the way the crowd is, um, good and bad, um, the way the courses are set up. Uh, it's just, it's just a bigger event. So I think guys get to the president's cup and they're just, they just play more relaxed. Um, and I think, I think Fred couples had a lot to do with that. I mean, they've done, American has done really well, but I think Fred was captain three times and, um, you know, Fred walks in a room and everybody just relaxes. So to him, have him there, you know, just being him made it so easy for the players to just go play because he, he didn't make it rocket science. He just, he said, I'm going to put you got you with you, go play, have fun. And, you know, that was it. So I think Fred had a lot to do. With, he was captain three of those teams that we were on. So um, that had a lot to do with it. And then, of course, the Ryder Cup and uh... – I was going to ask you on that. You were there in 08 with Zinger as the captain winning at home. Um, in your professional career, is that one of your fondest memories? And what was that week like to, to get that victory on home soil, you know, being on the bag with Hunter? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, my dream as a caddy was to work one Ryder Cup. Um, and now I've worked six, six as a caddy and the last one as an assistant. Um, but, but being able to win that and see how Zinger really set up a uh, system uh, that we're kind of using now. We took a few couple years off from 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 it, like uh, like Phil said in his famous press conference. But um, that week was so special because it was so organized. It was so all the players got there and within you know two hours knew everything that was going to happen all week long. Here's what we're going to do. Here's who you might play with. Um, here's the tees we're going to use and um, you know, that, that, that was a departure, I think, from some of the Ryder Cup captains in years past where it was kind of fly by the seat of your pants and not to say they weren't organized, but they didn't have a plan and a system like Zinger did with the pods. Um, and that just, it, 
it felt all it felt like a great week all week long. Really felt like we were going to win all week long. Um, you know, I think we. I don't think we. I don't think the score was huge at the end, but um, you know, it just felt like it was going to be our week all week long. So yeah, and winning a Ryder Cup is my is my favorite thing we, that I ever get to do. Working one in any way is my favorite. It's my favorite event. But uh, when you win one, it's just it's a feeling that you don't ever get because most of the year you're out there by yourself. It's you and your player. Um, you get to those weeks and you got, you know, 12 other players and 12 caddies and the assistants and everybody pulling on the same rope. And it's just a, a fun feeling to be around the team aspect again. Major championships in golf. What's your uh, favorite to work with, you know, to work in, I should say. And what about the history of that tournament just makes it so special to be out there on the bag? The Masters is my favorite, uh, with the Open Championship being a close second. Um, the Masters is just, it's a perfect golf tournament. Um, they do everything right year after year. You, you never you never question anything. You never think, boy, that's a poor setup or this or that. And, you know, they have the luxury of the same course every year, and they've, they've you know, they can make small improvements every year if they need to, which they do. Um but they're in total control and they do a great job. And they don't miss a beat. Um, from a caddying standpoint, it's one of the most challenging courses you can ever caddy on um, because the, the distance control with your iron there is so, so important. Um, and you get a day of, you know, a 15 mile an hour wind there and it is, you just don't get a break all, all the entire day because it's just, you have to be dead on. Um, there are shots out there that you, you really, you know, you've got a four iron in your hand, like on 15 and, um, you know, you've got, you've got basically three or four yards to land it. If you land it past that, it's going over. And if you land it short, it's probably going in the water. So that kind of a challenge being that perfect with, uh, with distance control and judging everything that goes into it. That's a, that's a thrill there for me. I, I love the challenge. Um, it's the hardest, but it's also, you know, the most rewarding when you, you get through with a week there and you've done well. Uh, the Open Championship to me is so fun because it's it's not a style of golf we ever get to play. Um, usually it's once once or twice a year, maybe if you play the Scottish Open, but um, Lynx golf is just so different. Um, so much more goes into your decision making. And um, I just, I love, love the crowds over there. I love the courses and how they set them up. And, you know, they basically say, you know, they put the flags in the ground, cut the holes, say, there you go. For the most part, those golf courses are, are, aren't any different than they are all, are all year long. Um, I love that aspect of it, that they're still challenging enough to, to hold up to these guys. It's good to ask you on the 2017 Open Championship. You guys were right there when it basically came down to Spieth and, and Cooch in that final nine holes. What was that atmosphere like to be in for that last nine holes? And, I mean, looking back, I know you guys – just came up a little bit short, but still had to be so exhilarating to be right there for one of the greatest championships in the world with, with nine holes to go. Yeah, it was, it was quite a thrill. Um, I think, I think Jordan started the day with a free shot lead and, and, you know, we made it up fairly quickly, I believe. And then, you know, I think at the turn we were, we were tied or pretty close to it. And, and, you know, they were just mano a mano at that point. I think we were, pretty clear third place and you knew at that point it was just those two so um it was uh it was thrilling and fun and, and it was a it was a pretty calm atmosphere between me and matt i don't think we felt any uh i don't think we did anything we we would take back i think we really did a did a really good job of of managing our emotions and um hitting the right shots um just jordan went on that streak that was just unbelievable and you know you get down to the end i think we went to the last four holes i think we had a one-shot lead and our last five holes with a one-shot lead and you know matt birdie's two out of the next four and that would usually get it done on a major uh but jordan just made that incredible run and um you know we couldn't quite match it but yeah to be a part of it um it's pretty special it's a pretty special feeling does it feel different than a, so you guys have been in contention you know tons of times does it feel different in a major or do you treat it just like you've been here before 
you know, this is not our first rodeo, yeah, or, or, or does it feel like a regular tour event, or do you have to make it feel like a regular tour event so the moment doesn't get too big, or is there no way not to understand what you're playing for in that situation? No, I think the worst thing you can do is act differently than you do week, week in, week out. Of course, internally, both of us are feeling, you know, more excited, more pressure, um, because you know the situation, but you cannot change your routine. It's, it's, um, you can't speak differently. Um, you know, unless, unless you're in the middle of a decision that you really strongly believe what you're saying is right. And, and he's on the wrong page. Um, for the most part, you have to keep the routine the same. Cause if you start to, you know, speak differently, walk differently, um, talk differently. That's going to set something off in him that goes, okay, this isn't normal. This is bigger. And he already knows that. So you don't want to plant any seeds in his head that this is, this is something we need to do something different here is what I'm trying to say. Um, you want to, you want them to do the same thing they do week in, week out and, you know, hope it's enough at the end, but you can't, you can't show differences in emotions or how you're speaking or anything like that. You really want to keep it the same, same thing that you always do. I was going to get your opinion on this topic as well, because it's getting battered around in social media quite a bit on the, on the distance debate. And, and when you started caddying professionally in 97, you know, the, the pro V one was not out yet. So there was still kind of more of an older school way of playing golf with a little more movement to the ball and more spin and more curvature. What's your opinion of how the eras have changed? And do you think the the way the golf is played today where distance is such a huge factor then you're better off to pound it, wedge it, and putt it versus working the ball or whatnot uh, compared to when you first started? Do you think the golf ball should be taken back a little bit so essentially it spins more, or are you completely comfortable with the way the modern game is being played? No, I'm a big proponent in rolling it back. Either, you know, rolling the ball back or, or making the drivers a little smaller. Um, even though that means you have to bifurcate the game and, and have the pros play a different ball than, um, than, you know, the everyday amateur. Um, I, 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 it's enjoyable to watch. I mean, who doesn't like watching long drives and, and, and things like, and, you know, to me, I think, I think we're seeing the end of an era where you're going to see guys like Cooch and Zach Johnson and, um, you know, the typical U S open, you know, prototype was a Tom kite or a Curtis strange who hit it two sixty five to a, um, hit their seven iron to B and, you know, hit their wedge to C and, and, and moved on and, you know, hitting fairways was important. Um, hitting fairways isn't that important on tour anymore. I think it's lost a lot of importance. So, and the, the I think courses are just tired of having to change their golf course. You know, how many more, how many more times does, does the masters have to put in new tees or, or, um, you know, some of these courses now are just defenseless, um, because the ball goes so far, the guys are bigger and stronger. The sweet spot of the driver is bigger. Um, everything is matched better. Um, there's not one reason for it, but I think the ball would be the simplest solution to just to roll it back for the, for the tour. You know, I, I that's my opinion. I know a lot of guys don't agree. Um, the longest guys are still going to be the longest guys. I just think, um, I think I, I read a stat where it was last year, the year before that all year long, Dustin Johnson didn't hit more than a six iron into a par four. Yeah. That was the, all year long. And, and I, I heard when he won, um, Kapalua two years ago, he, or I think it was last year. I think his average approach shot was 90 yards. I mean, that, that's I know he's one of the longest guys in the world, but you gotta you gotta find new challenges, you know. And, and keeping the game the way it is, I, I'm afraid is um, it, you're just gonna see one style of golfer anymore. You're not gonna see the, the variety. Well, and the tricky part is, you know, nine, you know, 51 other weeks of the year, even have a TPC golf course, those tee boxes are just basically shut down because people don't, I mean, I know how good the guys are and how far they hit it, but 99.99% of the people who play golf don't do that. So you kind of are right. setting this golf course up just for this little small group of 200 people who can do this. What's the cost associated with it? 
all the other stuff that unless you you know unless they're going to shoot 24 under par in your golf course if you don't make it longer or put some more protections that you know even a better amateur player doesn't need it's going to be interesting in the future uh, and I guess the point I made, you know, I was out at the web.com tour this year and you can see what's coming down the pipeline and uh, yeah, know, take a 7,200 yard golf course and it's driving iron, nine iron on a 450 yard par four. And you look yeah. at the size of these guys and you go, okay, you know, this is what's coming in the next three, you know, Cameron champs on the front end of that. And what's the game right. going to sort of look like? I don't think it's going to be as pretty. I liked seeing guys hit mid irons and and having a little bit more variety, but you know, I'm also 45 years old and had to grow up with wooden woods and a ball that spun. So I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see where where does it exactly go because I think these golf courses are going to be pretty defenseless for that elite group of players. I've I've said this for years, and I don't. It's just an uh, a, a, an opinion. It's like no basis in fact. I haven't heard anything. I don't have inside information. Uh, but I think the one entity that, that really is going to have the most say in this is going to be Augusta national. Um, I think at some point they are going to say, that's it. We're not, we're done changing our course. Um, and if you qualify, we would love to have you. And here's, here's our golf ball. Yeah. And, um, I think they're the one, one tournament with enough power, um, you know, and to, to do that, I think they're going to have a lot of say in it down the road. Um, and if, if they take the lead in something like that, I mean, there's not a player in the world who's going to say, I'm not playing the Masters. Um, maybe they're they're going to be able to, to make that change happen. But uh, it's just a hunch, and I have no no basis in fact, like I said. But I think they're the, they're the one entity with enough uh, power to, to do something like that and have, have it not be questioned. Is there any other rules that you would change in golf if you could just snap your fingers and make that change that you think would make the game better? Yeah, there are two. One is uh, sand and divots. Um, sand and divots to me are by definition under repair. Um, if there's no sand in it, that's fine, and that's that's part of the golf course. But when they sand the divot, that to me is that is a part of the golf course that is by definition being repaired, and you should get a free drop out of a out of a sanded out of a sanded uh, divot. Uh, the other one is plug ball marks. Um, I think if your ball ends up in a plug ball mark, no matter what, if it's yours or someone else's, you should get a drop. Because to me, you're you're setting up a a, a state where, let's say I hit, I'm in the group in front of you. I hit an eight iron to this hole. It comes up just short and plugs just short of the green in the fairway there. Okay, well I get a drop out of that. Take my ball, drop it, and you know hit an easy chip or an easy putt. Let's say you're right behind me in the next group. You roll up and your ball comes into the exact same situation mine was, in the exact same hole, but it didn't plug there, it rolled into it. Now you've got to play it. That, to me, is completely unfair. So those are the two rules that uh, I would like to see changed. Well, and these next few I have for you are just kind of quick hitters, whatever comes to your, your mind quickly okay. on this stuff, and then we'll get you out of here. But uh, besides yourself, of course, who are the two or three other caddies that you think do a great job and what do you admire you know most about those guys on tour with you uh joe lacava um, i've known joe forever he worked for fred forever and obviously with tiger uh, joe is so under the radar and, and so quiet but talk about confidence um i talked about that earlier joe is just so confident so prepared in what he's doing um he doesn't you know there's not a lot of fanfare there's not a lot of histrionics it's just um, here's the facts and, and here's the shot and, and go do it. So Joe to me is as good as it gets. Uh, Paul Tesori, I think is incredible. Um, who works for Webb Simpson, maybe the most prepared caddy out there. Um, but there's so many good foods. Mark Fulcher worked for Justin Rose, just incredible caddy. Um, there, there, there's so many now. I think there's, I'd say there's probably, 30 or 40 great caddies out there nowadays. And that's different probably from when you started. Yeah. I just, more goes into it now. Yeah. It just, when I started, it was, you know, it was simple compared to what goes into it now. Best golf shot you ever saw hit on the PGA tour. Could it be your, you know, your guy, your player or somebody else in the group where you were just absolutely blown away of how good that shot was? That is a great question. Can it be one I was at the tournament but didn't see in person? Or sure. Yeah. Yeah. Any, uh, any way you want to go with it. 
Tigers fairway bunker shot. I think it was a three iron at Hazeltine um, with the ball way below his feet, uh, huge trees right in front of him. Um, and he hit three iron over these trees and cut it to about 15 feet and made the birdie. I think it won on 18. Um, I think the nines were switched back. Then. But um, that that was the most incredible shot I've, I've ever seen. And I, I just never thought I'd see anything that compares to that. I still don't think I'll see anything that compares to that. Taking out the major championships, what's the best golf course on the PGA Tour for a normal event? And what makes that architecture of that golf course, you know, stand the test of time and, and makes it so great to play? Does Players' Championship count as a major or no? Nah, it's not a major. Okay, then Players' Championship, TPC. Um, I think you, you look at that course and you look at the list of winners, um, and anybody can win there. Uh, length is always length is always going to be an advantage, but it's less of an advantage there. It's one of the few courses we still play where you do have to hit fairways. Um, you can't that, that Bermuda rough is is so difficult to predict what the ball is going to do out of it. And if you don't have the ball in the fairway where you can control it, um, you're not going to be able to to play well on that course. And I think the fact that you guys, you know, guys from Fred Funk to Tiger Woods winning there um, says all you need to know about it. Anybody can win. I think it's the fairest course we play all year long. I'm going to have you take Tiger out of this, uh, the answer potentially, but because um, everyone says him. So the most talented, raw talent, natural talent, of anyone you've seen on the PGA Tour besides Tiger Woods? Dustin Johnson. Yeah, Dustin. Uh, it's just so, just physically, uh, what he can do is just, it, it, you, you figure out, you, you just, I look at that guy, and I think whatever sport he would have picked out, he would have been great at. He would have been a great baseball player. He would have been a great basketball player. Um, he's just physically so gifted. Um, I would definitely say Dustin. And my last one, sort of a, uh, opposite of this, but we, we'll, we'll throw Sutherland out of there since, since he's on the Champions Tour at this point. But who's one of the most, one or two, say, most underrated players on the PGA Tour that the average golf fan may not realize that player is just that good? You know, I, I've said this for years. Uh, in the time I've been out here, Paul Goidos is the single most in, impressive player I've ever seen. Because, honestly, I, I don't think he would – I don't think he would, you know, be upset with me saying, you know, if you were at your club championship and you, you we watched him warming up, you'd think, oh, I got this guy. It's not even going to be close. Uh, and yet here's a guy who's had, you know, I think he's won two or three times and then won a lot more on the senior tour, um, you know, was on tour for 20 something years. And, you know, you look at, you looked at the skill set and think, how does he get it done? And he just got it done. Um, Paul going up to me is, is, probably the most impressive golfer I've seen in my entire time out here. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Best of luck in 19 with, with Cooch out there. We're going to be watching you guys, and um, I think you're going to have a really good year, and it's going to be fun to watch. So I appreciate your time today being on the podcast. Absolutely, Jason. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. You had some great questions.